Okay, I've got to teach now. <coughs> After that, are we kidding? Whoa, okay, get a grip. Breathe, breathe, breathe. Was that amazing or what? <coughs> well, it's so wonderful to see you. Um, and welcome back. How many of you have um, been coming forever and a day and this is you just back again? Yeah. And let's do it. We should do it the other way around. How many of you are here for the very first time? Oh, my. <coughs> well, welcome, welcome. And our, our prayer is that we will make you feel welcome and um, that you'll say, oh, my goodness, I can't wait till next Wednesday. We hope that that's your feeling. So um, we are just delighted. And I just want to say, you know, it, it's so amazing that um, as busy as we are in this time and culture, that you have said, I don't care what happens, what appointments I have, what grocery, laundry, all these kinds of things, cleaning, goodness sake, I'm glad you're not, we're not sitting at my house right now. But anyway, um, whatever we have, that to you, you want to be here to open God's word so that we can be a reflection of Jesus. Wow, that is the theme, and that is just one of the most dramatic, powerful songs I think I've ever heard to express that, that in our gratitude for all that God has done for us through his son Jesus, that, um, that we can reflect him, that he gives us that joy and privilege. Marty, I need to know, can you hear me back there? Yes. Okay, I think that's a yes. Anyway. So what I wanted to talk to you a little bit, just a little housekeeping here. I know Pam said a lot of other things um, for us to remember and all that. I just want to tell you a little bit about our book. If you run into any of the staff here at Sheridan House, just would you say thank you, thank you so much for all you did. They edited, they formatted, they raced it to the, the printers and all these things. They really are kind of the behind-the-scenes team that have helped put it together. So I'm just really, really excited about that. And I want to say, if you'll turn with me, I want you to first of all turn to lesson one. It's on page two. And later on, be sure and read the, you know, the, um, their acknowledgments and all those kinds of things in the front. But later on, you can do that. Maybe when you're falling asleep and you're so bored, so you need to read something. But uh, anyway, if you'll turn to page, um, it's page eight. And um, the ladies that you have been here coming for ever in a day, um, I, I don't even say this to you, but this is probably, not probably, this is the most important part of coming to Bible study. Because this is where, it says, do you see that word, that sort of intimidating, if it sends you back to middle school or whatever, homework. Um, when you see that word, it's a little intimidating. But this is where we have personal time with God, where he speaks to our hearts personally, one-on-one. -on -one. That is the most important Bible study time we have. And so that's in there with some verses for you to look up and for you to think about it and apply. And then secondarily, it's so amazing to be able to sit at a group and share with other women. Of all, I, I love the diversity of our group and just all different ages and ethnicities and all the different things we've got going on here. And we get to share with each other say, well, what did you get here? What did you get there? And it has a, it's an opportunity to learn from one another and grow from each other. Thirdly, probably the least important thing is the podium. You know, hopefully, Sarah 
Heather, Stephanie, me. Hopefully there'll be some truths that come out here <laughs> um, in the Lord's graciousness. But the point is doing it by yourself, doing it with each other is, is just so important for us. Uh, I also want to say um, when you come in next week, um, we will be checking your books to make sure that every single question is... <laughs> You're laughing. You don't think I'm serious, do you? Anyway, no, that's a personal thing, but it's there for you. It's there for you. It's not going to be a, did you get your homework done? Kind of a thing. But for your sake, I just encourage you to do that. So anyway, we're, we're beginning in, uh, at lesson one. And I'd like you to turn to Philippians chapter 1, and I'm going to give you a little bit of background first, and then we'll jump right in to um, that first chapter. Um, and so I want to talk about, first of all, why, first on your outline, why are we studying Philippians? Why are we studying Philippians? James Montgomery Boyce, a great commentator on many of the books of the Bible, including Philippians, said this, any Christian who is feeling down or discouraged about anything should study Paul's great letter to the Philippians. Is that a great statement? I don't know if any of you are feeling down or discouraged. You don't have to raise your hand or nod your head. But you know what? If you're having a wonderful and joyous day, thank you, Jesus. But there are going to be days, aren't there? When we're discouraged and we're troubled and we've got things going on and we're, we're frightened and we're stressed and we're overworked and we're overburdened and all those kinds of things. And this great commentator who's written, who's written so much wisdom about so many books of the Bible says, wow, that there's no greater book than the, than the book of Philippians. And I think we're going to find that as we start digging in. Paul, the writer, the Apostle Paul, is one of the most celebrated of all Christians. And I can I be honest with you? Jesus, please don't tell him I said this, but um, I, I, he's intimidating to me. You know, I, when I get to, to heaven, you know, there's some people I want to see right away. First Jesus, of course, and then family members that have gone on before. And, um, you know, Esther, wow, the Old Testament. I want to see how, just how beautiful she is. But we're going to be all as beautiful, right? Because we're going to be in our perfect heavenly bodies. But anyway, um, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and um, John, you know, Jesus' best friend, and, you know, on and on and on. Paul, I'm a little bit, hmm. That's bad. I shouldn't say that. Because of his focus, his drive, his, you know, understanding his call on his life and, and all those kinds of things. But here's the interesting thing. The book of Philippians we get to see Paul's heart. We get to go inside. And so when we're done studying the book of Philippians, I bet we won't feel that way about when we see him in heaven. We'll, we'll embrace him like we would the apostle Paul, John. But anyway, uh, it is one of the, because of this, we get to see his heart. It's one of the most beloved books in the Bible. I read recently a quote that said, Philippians is seen as the happiest book in the Bible yet it was written in prison. Our circumstances do not determine our joy. Isn't that true? Don't you love it? Okay, we can go home now. I'm done. <laughs> anyway, 
as we reflect on all that God has done, our lives should reflect Jesus. And as we study the word of God and learn every passage, all that God has done for us in this life and in the future, we ha will have the veil removed. When we begin to understand all that God has done, and boy, those of you who have been studying the word of God for years and years and years, I mean, think about it. Ephesians, uh, um, well, Ephesians 2, but as well, but, um, you know, Romans 8, all the things, what he has for us in heaven when we studied about heaven. John, what Jesus did for us when he came and took off his robe and his crown and said, angels, <clears throat> step back. I'm going to earth. My bride needs me. And all that he did, the teaching, the healing, the, the role modeling, on and on it goes of what Jesus did. When we begin to see that and understand all that God has done for us, our veil begins to be removed and we can begin to reflect the glory of God. That is our theme verse. It's on the front of your book. It's 2 Corinthians 3.18. So all of us who have had um, the veil removed, can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. As we study, the deeper and deeper we get into our study, we realize we are so incredibly loved by God that he desires for us to not only leave, live eternally with him, but he wants us to have the joy of reflecting him. That's for our sake. God doesn't need us, does he? I mean, he can snap his fingers and do whatever he pleases in all of our lives, but he allows us the privilege and joy of reflecting him. That's for us. So as we study, we're going to learn not only as we study the word of God, all that Jesus did for us and in this life and the future life, and we can more and more begin to reflect the glory. We will process how to be a reflection for Jesus. Now we're going to learn themes and some very practical words here. So next on your outline, what is the outcome of studying Philippians? What is the outcome of studying the book of Philippians? A, first of all, we will relate Paul's world to ours. It will bring into our world his perspective and relate it to our lives. Now, our lives are very, very different from somebody that lived in the day of the Apostle Paul. But you know what? Not so much. We always have the same challenges, basically. We, you know, we, they may look differently, but underneath uh, what, what we look at is really the same challenge, isn't it? I, my brother, sort of the family historian, sent my other brother and I a text of, of a um, letter that he found from my uncle. My uncle was a missionary in Korea. My parents were missionaries in Japan, and um, they were home on furlough. And so my uncle came in from Korea to kind of, you know, help them and, and um, be with them. And in the letter, this is what it said. There was still shopping. Um, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> mail. Uh, laundry, as well as social obligation. Glenn, my dad, is working as hard as Claire, my mother, uh, doing all that he needs to do. They're equally be busy. None of them have sat down just to read or chat since I got here. That was written in the 1950s. Doesn't that sound like one of your days? And I thought about that. As I was reading that text, I thought, you know what? It doesn't matter whether it was 
in the 80s, the 90s, the 50s, you know, and certainly the challenges are different. I mean, when they went to the grocery store, it was a whole different ballgame from when we go to the grocery store today, getting run over by grocery carts and whatnot. But anyway, um, but still, it was the same challenges, busyness and doing, 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 and not having enough time to think and ponder and all those kinds of things. Problems, challenges look different, but they're basically the same. So we will study Paul and we'll see what, what he, his life was like, different but same. Difficult world have challenges. What does he say about those challenges, number one? What does he say about prayer? What does he say about suffering? What should our attitude be and how can we have that attitude? And again, as although he lived and experienced his circumstances 2,000 years ago, that's a few years, right? We will see the relevance of how to deal with them. Secondly, B, the second outcome is to learn how to practically live biblically. This is one of the most practical books in the Word of God. Practical. The same purpose we have every year as we study the Bible together is how to take God's Word and apply it to everyday living. How will this help me reflect Jesus better? when I begin to study what these words say. Ezra 7.10, you don't need to look it up, keep your finger in Philippians, but Ezra 7.10 says this, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel, to study the word of God. The purposes of the Bible study, as all of them, is for us to become literate women of the Bible. Let me say that again, literate women of the Bible. Now we had reading classes, how to read and all those kinds of things early on in, in our educational process, but we wanna be literate women of God, don't we? Uh, so we can get back, go back into our homes, our communities, our jobs, better equipped to do what God desires for us, better equipped to reflect Jesus, as that verse says. So many of you said that, thank you again for your love letters that you sent me at the end of the year. I devour them. I mean, I really do, every single word. And um, that was one of the, the themes that I saw over and over again. Studying this, these lessons helped me to go back into my home and be different. Being in the Word of God helped me in my job, in my community, in my church, whatever it is, to reflect Jesus more. You didn't use those words because that's now. You can say that this summer, okay, would you please? please? Anyway, um, but that was the theme, and that's what we're here for, to become literate, to let up apply and change our lives as we go back into our spheres of influence, our worlds that we live in. Now, I'm launching into a history lesson. Are you okay? Does everybody need to run up and get a cup of coffee? Do not fall asleep or you'll hurt my feelings, but history. Okay, we need to know this. What is the background of Philippians? It helps us to understand what Paul was writing and why he was writing and to whom he was writing. So A, first of all, what was Philippi like? What was Philippi like? Um, in the middle of the first century when this book was written, it was not a large metropolis, but as you can see on our map here, it was strategically located. 
There we go. See, Pam is so good on cue there. Okay, I want you to look kind of in the middle of the map. Do you see Philippi there? Ladies in the back, I hope you can see it. But do you see it's small compared to, look where Rome and how big Rome is up on the um, Italian boot up there by the Adriatic Sea. It's small, but notice where it is. It's kind of in the middle of the map. The Ignatian Way was an artery. You can kind of see red and all those kinds of things. It's really kind of um, mapping out Paul's missionary journeys. But you can see how it's kind of in the middle. The Rome over here, which was the sort of the capital of the world at that point, and then all these other you know, um, countries and cities and so forth on the other side. And it's right strategically located. The Ignatian Way was an artery of commerce linking Rome to the far left, with the eastern provinces, and it passed right through the city center. Are you still awake? Good. Smile at me, okay? Um, also, number two, it had a rich heritage and distinct culture. Though many miles east of Rome, Philippi was a colony since the time of Mark Antony. Do you remember that name from hi your history book? Do you remember he was connected with Cleopatra? We won't go into all that, but that Mark Antony was um, a colony since that time, and many of the Philippians were descended from soldiers who had settled there after many Roman battles. And as a result, Latin was a common language, there, and they were proud of their distinct, distinctly Roman flavor. And because of this, number three on your outline, Paul used this city as a base for his evangelical efforts. Though small, it was one of the most important city in the region. Letter B. What was happening when Paul arrived? Interestingly, his custom, when he would arrive in a location, we learned this from Acts 14, you might want to might drop that down, was to go first to the synagogue to begin his teachings and ministry. But in Acts 16, we learn, number one, that a group of women were worshiping by a river. They were worshipers of the God of Abraham. Apparently, there were not enough Jewish men in the area to form a synagogue, and the women were only comfortable outside of the city because Jewish worship was not welcome in a Roman city. So they said, okay, gals, we're going to go out by the river, and we're going to worship, and we're going to talk about the God of Abraham. And I don't know how, what their worship looked like at that point, but that was, they, they did not know the Lord yet. So they were out there. Number two, they were very unpopular. Well, maybe they did know, the, as I'm saying this, they, maybe they did know the Lord. They were unpopular with the city management. You know why? Because earlier, Paul and his group had cast out a fortune-telling demon and therefore asked to leave. This fortune-telling demon um, was being very lucrative <laughs> in the people. And so when they cast out this demon, they're like, we don't want you in town. You're messing with my pocketbook, <laughs> is basically the idea here. However, when they left, they left an interesting, when Paul and his group left, they left an interesting group of believers. Lydia, I don't know if you remember that name, maybe some of you have that name, Lydia, it's a favorite name of ladies. Um, a very successful businesswoman, a jailer in his family. That story from Acts when um, uh, Paul was singing and member in jail, and, and anyway, I 
got to stick to here. That's another amazing story. But anyway, jailer, his family, and probably a slave girl. C, letter C. The Philippian church was a favorite of Paul's. Although obviously they were a church with struggles, not the least of which was extreme diversity of their group, apparently they were very loved by Paul. Why? Number one, they were generous supporters. The Philippians joyfully supported Paul in his missionary efforts from the beginning, we're going to learn later on, and they were so generous in their collections for famine-stricken churches that Paul used them as an example of people who had the gift of giving, and that's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. What an um, the amazing thing, however, about their generosity. This is what I love. You ready? Two on your outline. They were generous in spite of personal poverty. They gave out, they gave a middle, uh, widow's might. They gave out of, not, not because we have, oh, we have so, such a big bank account. Let's see, how can we help those uh, famine-stricken churches? No. How can we send relief to the Bahamas? I've got this checking account that's stuffed. It was just the opposite. They were struggling themselves. You know, sometimes I think as American Christians, I'm saying this to Rosemary, we can be so stingy. Do you know that we are the most affluent Christian community in the entire world? And yet, so often, we hoard for ourselves. Me too. I'm struggling. I struggle with that. We're so busy collecting things to clutter our lives instead of looking for ways to bless the lives of others. Now, I want to quickly say, we have the privilege here at Sheridan House. To, we have seen so much generosity. It starts with um, unicorn backpacks. To many of you who donated, you donate your time. That's generous. Um, you're sitting in a beautiful building that is a result of somebody's generosity. You pulled onto a property of 57 acres that is a result of generosity. You are watching triplexes being built because of people's generosity, not necessarily wealthy people, people who have dug deeply into their po pockets and say, I want to be a part of what's going on in God's kingdom. I want to give, not necessarily out of generosity, like the Philippian Christians. There's a single mom, in fact, she attends Tuesday night, was here last night. She, she's so unaware that she, I had to say, you know, I was talking about you. Aww. Yeah. Um, she was a single mom who was a monthly giver. Every month she would give Sharon House not much. She couldn't afford much, but she gave, gave, gave. And um, she had dental work that she had to have done, and she had to have it done in installments because she couldn't afford to have it done all in one shot. And um, she would clean public park toilets to put food on the table for her family, and yet she would never, ever consider missing, sending $10 or $5 or whatever it was that she had committed to the program. That's generosity. That's Philippian generosity. There's another mom who... Um, Another hero, also connected with the Bible study, that uh, when she sold her home she, and got a profit from selling her home, she tithed that profit 
and sent it to Sheridan House because she wanted to affect the lives of other people. Many of you are in that place. The widow's might, generosity. Wow. That's the Philippian church. What an opportunity we have, don't we, right now, as we have been <laughs> blessed by getting passed over by Dorian? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, did some of us did not even lose... I, I, did you lose a tree? Did you lose one tile off your roof? No. So isn't this the time for us to join other Christian believers? Many, many churches across our area are sending uh, relief to the Bahamas and other places who have been, have been devastated. Church United has come together, uniting many, many churches across our area to, to send money over there. Wow, what an opportunity for us to be Philippian givers. I like that, Philippian givers. That's nice. Anyway, okay, moving on. I could sit here all day. <clears throat> Number three, they were an encouragement. Why were they so special? to Paul, they were an encouragement. As he had to deal with some difficult relationships in other churches, to receive tangible, sacrificial support for his effort must have been incredible. That gives us a bit of background of the church to which Paul was writing this letter. So next on your outline, what were some of the characteristics of Philippians? What are some of the characteristics of Philippians, the book of Philippians? A, it is the most personal, We've kind of already said this of Paul's writings. Number one, it was filled with personal touches. Number two, there was an absence of formal doctrine. You know, like in Romans and some of the other letters that Paul wrote, he talked about the gospel and he talked about doctrine and what we're to believe and how we are to behave underneath those beliefs and so forth. This one feels much more like a personal letter, letter than a document with ministry purpose. Number three, we get a glimpse into Paul's heart. More unusual for a Pauline letter than letters of, say, John or Peter. Remember those of you who were here when we studied 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John? Very personal, the heart of the Apostle uh, John. And Peter's book, 1st and 2nd Peter, very, very personal. And this sounds more like those writers. Scholars believe that probably 10 to 12 years had um, elapsed since the formation of the Philippian church and this letter. B, Paul, this is key, was in prison while writing this book. Number one, he was possibly even facing his execution. He never knew from one day to another whether he'd be in heaven the next day. And we're going to see some incredible verses related to that later on. For me to live as Christ and to die as... Yes, yeah, see, you don't need to study this. You already know it. <laughs> anyway, um, but he was probably facing his, ex his execution. He was facing his execution. It was just a matter of when. Most likely he was in Rome because of his reference to the Praetorian Guard, most of which were stationed to guard the emperor's residence in Rome. Also later on we'll see a mention of believers in Caesar's household, which again would have been in Rome. Because of this too, his theme of joy, in spite of trials, has tremendous credibility to our hearts. He knows what he's talking about. When he's telling us to be joyful in the midst of trials, guess what? We can listen, because he knows. I don't think any one of us here has been locked in a prison, right? 
okay. <laughs> Don't scare me. <laughs> Certainly locked in a prison facing execution, right? No. So, you know, could there be something worse than that as far as issues? Um, anyway, and yet he's saying, be full of joy. In fact, in Philippians 1, look down at verse 27, we'll go back again, but it says this, um, if you have the NIV translation, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's so profound because every one of us have whatever happens in our lives. You might be in a whatever happens right now. You may be in a whatever happens later on. You may have come out of a whatever happens in the past. But whatever it is, we all have those. I have them. You have them. We all have them. Guess why? Because we live in an imperfect world. We live in not heaven yet. When we get to heaven, guess what? There won't be any whatever happens anymore. We'll be done with all that. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, Denise. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Just want to make sure you're awake over there. <laughs> anyway. So <clears throat> because he can say that with such credibility, he can say whatever happens because he was in a whatever happens in his life as he says that. So see, moving on, Paul had several reasons for writing Philippians. Number one, for explanation. Explanation. When the Philippians heard Paul was in prison, true to their love and concern for him, they sent a fellow church member, we'll be studying about him in the days to come, to minister to Paul and deliver monetary gifts to Paul. That brother, however, brother quotes unquote, brother in the Lord, um, however, got so ill that he could not forget, uh, fulfill his obligations to Paul and help him out and whatever he was ministering, whatever he was doing from a prison cell or under house arrest or whatever the situation was that he was imprisoned in. And so Paul sent back a letter with him, said, I'm sending him back to you. We'll read about that because he's been, thank you for sending him, but he, he you know, he's ill. I want him to get home. Uh, and so he's, this is a letter explaining with a thank you note, but thank you for thinking of me. Wow. Number two, for expressing that gratitude, he desires to commend the messenger and to thank them for their concern and generosity. And number three, to warn them. He wanted them to be warned of impending danger of being believers. And four, to encourage them to stand firm in their faith. Yes, as followers of Jesus Christ, you're going to have issues, he's saying. You're going to have difficulties. You're going to have challenges. But stand firm in your faith. Be a reflection of Christ Jesus in your life. Next, what are the themes of the book of Philippians? It's a lot of background today, but hang with me because I think it's just will have such an impact on what we're going to be studying in the weeks ahead. What are the themes in the book of Philippians? A, the first theme, as we have said, is learning to have joy. Learning to have joy. One of the most important words in this letter is rejoice. Perhaps one of the key verses in all of the book is chapter 4, four uh, chapter 4, verse 4, and you'll say it with me, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, there you go. Are you discouraged? Are you burdened about something? Guess what? You're in good company. If yes, this is your book. This is your book. Because 
would anybody be more discouraged than what Paul was going through? And yet he's saying rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Wow. Second theme, I love this, is how to have joy. He doesn't just say be joyful. He says, okay, this is how you do it. There are, um, James Montgomery Boyce again says this, the secret is, sim is a simple one. Paul had filled his mind with Christ. Filled his mind with Christ. There are 50 references in this short book to Jesus Christ. 50 references. As if Paul is giving us the how to have joy is, in other words, the more we center our lives in the Lord Jesus, the more we're able to rejoice even when circumstances don't give us reason to. I commend you for being here weekly. There are a lot of things we could be doing. We could be cleaning. That's on my mind. Have you noticed that? Uh, we could be doing our grocery shopping, all the things that we could be doing. Um, shopping, you know, whatever. And, and yet you have chosen to be here because you are centering your life around the Lord. Good for you. That is where we can learn to have joy. He will teach us, the Lord, how to face our whatever happens in our lives, just as Paul was able to do. The more we center on him, the more we study him, the more we fill our minds and our hearts and our spirits with him, the more we're talking to each other, the more we're sharing uh, about the Lord, the more that, that embeds itself deeply in our psyches and we can learn to have joy. C, the third theme is dealing with challenges in the church. Kent Hughes, another great uh, scholar about the book of Philippians, says this, Philippians has at its heart a depth of fellowship that exceeds any earthly fellowship. Your partnership or fellowship is the gospel. I um, will mention them, but we will study them in deep when we meet them uh, in the text of the letter. But the first one is church unity, church unity. Bob and I spoke a while ago in a church that their theme of their denomination was evident in everything that they had, any written um, pamphlet or anything, it was written on the bottom. They had several s signs hanging on the wall. And this is what it said, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all, love. Isn't that good? Essentials, the, the um, importance of the gospel, that we are sinners. We need to be forgiven that Jesus came and died for our sins. When we embrace his forgiveness and receive him as our personal Lord and Savior, we will spend eternity with him. Those are the essentials. We can't debate about that. That is the core of what we believe, isn't it? The non-essentials, well, do you think we should have hymns or choruses in church? Or, you know, do you, how do you feel about having a Saturday night service? Shouldn't it be Sunday? Or how about this, suits or jeans to church? <laughs> Dresses or capris? Those are the non-essentials. And what, did, what does that sign say? Liberty, liberty. Let's love each other in spite of our non-essential differences, but in all love. Wow, wow. Church unity. To withstand the onslaughts of the forces hostile to this gospel. And can I just say, has there ever been a time 
in history when things are more difficult for the Christian community. And you know what? I think there's no greater testimony other than our own reflection of Jesus Christ, maybe secondly, is how we are unified as believers. The non-Christian community is watching us. Oh my goodness, there goes that other church. There's another church, I think, you know, they, they call it a split or something. And some of them are going over here and some of them are going <laughs> over there. And um, um, so how could they, what they believe must not really be true because goodness sakes, you know, they're mad at each other all the time. When they see unity within our, our ranks is one of the greatest testimonies that we can have. It's a, one of the greatest reflections of the Lord Jesus. There's a, a chapter in the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 2, um, where it talks about how the believers, the early believers, came together and they, they ministered to each other and they opened their pocketbooks and they you know, shared their belongings. When one, uh, somebody in their fellowship needed something, the other one would come and, and give it to them and they just were, you know ministering together and the people were looking at him saying wow and it says at the very end of the chapter that or that section it says and the lord multiplied their numbers one of the greatest testimonies we can have out there to an unbelieving uh, area is church unity <clears throat> number two dealing with suffer suffering um, of the church challenges that, that we're talking about here theme of challenges in church uh, is um dealing with suffering. It gives the Christian the perspective on suffering. Number three, we will talk more about that in a little bit uh, later. Number three, dealing with a hostile world. The book of Philippians has much to say of a relationship between believers and the fallen world around them. Boy, is this a time when we have seen anger, disdain, and I mean, I can't even think of all the adjectives to think about how the world out there visualizes Christians. I read an article about that um, on Fox News just the other day about how um, you know, born-again believers are looked at as racists and bigots and on and on and on it goes. It's a time where um, we're dealing more and more with the hostile world. But you know, in a sense, this sounds really ridiculous, but in a way, isn't, it's sort of helpful that we, you know, that we can see the difference between people that claim there are Christians and people that are totally not Christians. Some of you have heard Bob tell the story, but when he first moved from the Washington, D.C. area to go to college in Tennessee, he said, you know, I just couldn't believe it. He said, it's like on Sunday mornings, even the livestock go to, to church. <laughs> And then he went on to say, you know, I would have fraternity brothers that were just wild men on Saturday night, and then Sunday morning, you know, crack of dawn, they're putting on suits and ties, and, and I'd say, what are you doing? And they say, we're going to church. He's like, uh, Saturday night, church on Sunday morning. And uh, he just couldn't get it as a non-believer watching all that. But for us, the division is pretty clear, isn't it? between an angry, hostile world, and that's why we are called so much through this book to reflect Jesus so that we are different from the world around us. 
Wow. Paul's opening remarks. Finally, we're past the history lesson. You can wake up now. Uh, <clears throat> look at Philippians 1, 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are his opening remarks. To the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from our God and our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, he begins with words of greeting. He uses a similar style that all of um, letters at that time began. He does really a very interesting thing, though, is he uses words of the theme that he's going to talk about, one of the themes, which is grace and peace. B, he uses three basic changes. Number one, how he references himself. In some of his books, he says, Paul the Apostle. Notice what he says here. Timothy and Paul, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, that word servants in the original language actually means slaves, doulos. We are the slaves of Christ Jesus. He's showing them, you know, what his position is, that I, I am a servant of Jesus. There's humility in this theme, as he will develop later in the letter as, he, as it progresses. Secondly, he mentions all the saints, all the believers, and he also, even though he downplays himself, he recognizes the officials of the church. He wanted everybody, leadership as well as the pew sitter, to be included in this letter. He wanted everybody to hear what he had to say. Unity and concern for all others is also such a theme in this book. Thirdly, he focuses on what God has done. Rather than a typical greeting of hope this finds you well, um, I'm in Rome in prison, but I hope this finds you well, he uses the word grace and peace. He's bringing into their focus what God has done for them, what God has done for them. Then, in his opening remarks, see, he uses prayers of thanksgiving. Look at verses three through eight. I thank God, my God, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of our partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I, not just fellowship, am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, not just about fellowship, that we have a task that we're going to do together that Jesus is going to complete. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my, as my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul is joyful in what God is doing amongst them and he gives Three reasons to show this clearly. First, because they have partnered with him. We've already talked about that. He uses the word partner in the original as koinonia. And it's not just, hey, let's go get a cup of coffee together and talk about Jesus. They participated. They've supported him um, you know, financially and all that. Um, I, I've sh already shared with you the incredible meaningfulness of um, to see the supporters of this ministry, not just from people who are able, but from the widow's might that I already talked to you about and receive that we receive all the time. Secondly, because of his confidence that God is working in their lives. He sees evidence in what their, by what their spirit is like. He is confident that God is working and therefore will complete um, what he is doing in our lives. That's a comfort, don't you think? To know that, you know, when you see that your attitude is better today than it was yesterday, 
or that you're more forgiving today than you were yesterday, when you see progress, that's inspiring. And you go, oh, the Lord's working. Okay, I can keep moving here. I'll never forget some of you who are very familiar uh, with Sheridan House property. That We have places that say Hornsby Way. And some of you even know Rick and Debbie Hornsby. Rick Hornsby was very pivotal in the early stages of acquiring this land and, and getting contractors to help with the building and on and on and on it goes. Very pivotal in the beginning, very humble. And he went home to be with the Lord uh, just a few months ago and um, very young struggling with cancer for years. And I had lunch with his wife, Debbie, and I said, Debbie, you are such an example of a warrior that you ministered to him and hung in there and helped him and, you know, through all the struggles that he had. And she goes, well, thank you for saying that because you know what? That gives me the courage to go on. And I said, well, watching you gives me the courage to, to do what you're doing. And so we encourage each other. We have koinonia with each other. And when we see that progress, we know that God is working in our lives. When we see uh, God um, being e exemplified in our lives. Number three, and we're almost done. I promise we'll be done on time better. But there's a lot of background here, right? Anyway, history lessons. Three, because of his personal affection, he uses a prayer of thanksgiving because of his personal affection for them joyful thanks because of what he feels for them. What a sweet, warm look at this great apostle's heart. He, look at again, it's verse, in verse seven, he says, he has them in their heart. And then in verse eight, he longs for them with the affection of Christ. He, and he says, he feels that way toward them because they have stood by him through thick and thin, supporting him in all ways. How we need that perspective today in the Lord's work, amongst people that are ministering for God's sake. We, how we need to support those on the front line of ministry, our pastors, staff members through financial support, prayers, or just loving acts, acts of encouragement. Did you read this article lately of the young pastor that took his life? Yes. What a heartbreak. Do you know when we read that, Bob looked and did some research and he found out the number of pastors that leave the ministry because of the rigors in this day and age. Do you know that 1,500 pastors quit every month? Do you know that 97 of them have been betrayed, falsely accused, or hurt by their trusted friends? Do you know that 70% of pastors battle depression? Do you know that 7,000 churches close each year? 10% only retire as pastors? Did you know that 80% felt discouraged? Do you know that 94% of pastors' family feel the pressure? Do you know that 90% of pastors report working 55 to 70 hours a week? Wow. This is a difficult time for ministry. Difficult time for ministry. Pray for your pastors, ministerial staffs, their families. Wow. Now, I want to say I'm not a pastor, but I cannot thank you enough for your sweet, encouraging letters, your, your hugs when I come in here on Wednesday morning. I'm not even a pastor, so take all that and go hug your pastor's families, okay? 
minister to them. It's a difficult time for ministry. I grew up in a ministry home for multiple generations. I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you the truth. And I know how true this all is. It is difficult in this day and age to do ministry professionally. Love your church staff. Let's pray together. <clears throat> oh, Lord Jesus, we are so excited about what we are going to learn together through this book. There is so much, so many ways that we desire and can, and with your help, Holy Spirit, begin to more and more reflect who you are. Lord, may we be diligent to respond nudgings of the Holy Spirit. May we be diligent to listen. May we be diligent to put aside the busyness of living in this culture with all the demands and all the things that we need and have to do to just be quiet before you so that we can reflect you in our deep gratitude for all that you've done in our lives. Again, I thank you and praise you for this number of women that deeply desire to study deeply your word, to become literate women of the Bible. Thank you. And we commit this year of study to you in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior who made it possible. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.